I'm your producer, Todd Bartu, and this is Offshore Explorer. Offshore Explorer looks at the world from the sailor's point of view, port by port. Together, we share stories that detail the important intersections between sailing culture and life, past, present, and future. Let me introduce our host, a lifelong sailor who has traveled the world, from mega yachts to tugboats to iceboats, and a published author who has written for both stage and screen, Captain Scott Totson. Hey Todd, how are you doing today? Um, little choppy today down here in the marina. Uh, small craft warning again, while the rest of the country freezes. Uh, we have, um, you know, a lovely 15-knot breeze and little choppy waves, kind of like uh, the front doesn't know which way to go. <laughs> That's good. Uh, it seems like a lot of people really enjoyed our last episode. And in fact, I have here in my own little hands, so I had this review, uh, an, another amazing five-star review. You, ha- you, you have an amazing five-star review. I do. Spit um, it out, lad. Spit it out. Tell us what it says. Uh, it is, they just get it. From Simon in the in Great Britain says, I love this podcast. They have the right voices for a podcast, easy to listen to, and the stories are really what sailing is about. Not just type of rig and technical issues, but also the stories of people and places visited by boat. Thank you, Simon, for those kind words. And if you want us to read your review online, be sure to leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Yeah, thank you, Simon. I appreciate that. Um, we, tr- we endeavor to uh, keep churning out the stories, and uh, I, we really appreciate you uh, listening in and, and taking the time to, uh, to um, say some nice things about us. And I understand we have some, uh, some big news that we just launched a brand new site. Oh, no. Yes, that's right. We just launched um, Offshore ships locker offshore ships locker.com you can find it on there and um, we have a, a number of um, cool pl- things to get some kits got our own private branding going on with some t-shirts and mugs and hats and kind of the standard stuff but we also have um, our sponsors uh, mustang survival and they have some great great um, offshore clothing um, you know, the stuff and the gear that the guys were wearing, uh, while, uh, while racing uh, on the Vendee globe around the world. Um, really good to know when you have that kind of equipment, it's the best you could possibly have. And, um, also, uh, the guys that are doing the America's cup, um, we have uh, their equipment as well. Plus there's lots of good safety harnesses, etc. We also have Body Glove, which is a very, very famous brand and a local brand here um, down in Redondo Beach. Um, probably the the brand that uh, created the California look. But uh, they have some great wetsuits uh, for every kind of um, uh, water level, I suppose, or chilliness. Um, different kinds of bathing suits, T-shirts, and all the rest of the kind of stuff. Just some cool shit. And um, I love that site. The people are really wonderful. Family-owned business, um, which is great. And and then we have my medic. I, I'm really into safety, and I'd like to see everybody on every boat have a serious medical kit and not some just a Band-Aid box because uh, stuff happens fast on a boat, and you can be severely injured. And my medic has a complete kit 
Um, the guys that own the company um, are former Navy SEALs and medics in the service, and they've put together a really, really solid kit. And I think it's uh, worth the investment to have on your boat and, and to, be sec- to be secure as far as being prepared for the next emergency. We also have Scuba Pro. Now, I was trying to think over the years how much money I've spent on Scuba Pro, but it's been an awful lot of money because I did dive charters for a number of years where I had to buy regulators and tanks and flotation vests and flippers and, you know, snorkels and, you know, everything. But um, they're a great, great company, really high quality stuff. And um, it's, you know, it's worth. I'm only curating really high quality gear. Um, We have a couple of more uh, sponsors we're trying to work with. And um, so we will be growing. But essentially with what we have on the website now, we have essentially thousands of items already in there and they're they're easy to find and um, we we hope you all take a look and find something kind of cool because the profits from it go to support us doing this podcast absolutely and and you know we don't we don't put anything on there that we don't stand by ourselves so it's it's good quality product um and so moving on from the commercial section and we've got those out of the way what do we have in store for today's episode well, today we're having a little bit of a trouble, a little bit of trouble trying to figure out what it, a really good um, title for this episode would be. But let's put it this way: um, if you were going to imagine the word environment and all the different environments that you live in—political uh, environment, social environment. Uh, you know, the climate is that kind of environment. But environment is sort of anything that's around you in your little area, your little bubble. Well, uh, when you sail and you cruise, um, you're bringing your boat with you. You're bringing your home with you. So you have your own sort of private bubble that you're traveling with, your own private environment. And then that environment goes into a variety of different environments from country to country. And this is a rather long story that I'm telling that starts um, in Anatolia, Turkey, and finishes in Cyprus. Okay, great. Take it away, Scott. Last week I mentioned um, in our, our post podcast that I was going to do an essay on environment. And I'm sure a lot of you thought, oh, he's going to talk about environmental issues. He's going to talk about, you know, that placard that happens to be on the every boat that says you can't uh, dump oil or gas or where to dump this, that, another thing, how many miles out you have to be. That's kind of an American thing. It's a little bit different in other countries. Um, just so, you know, you would know. But it got me to thinking about environment in in terms of what sailing and cruising is all about. There's different ways that environment can be applied to a sailing life. And, you know, of course, there's environmental, which we all have to deal with. It's essentially the climate, um, the warming, pollution, you know, all those things. I know I see a lot of reports and they're, they're always jumping up and down about boaters being the big polluters. And how disruptive they are to the 
seaways and this, that, and other thing. And, and you know what? To be perfectly honest, I don't believe any of that stuff because I think for the most part, although we in the boating industry have accidents, I'm going to talk about one of those. Um, but, you know, for the most part, I think that we're very environmentally conscious and our boats are not designed so much to, you know, to leak oil. We don't like that. It's not a good thing. Um, the whole gray water, black water tank issue. Um, so there's a lot of things that I think as boaters that we've taken a lot of steps to mitigating in terms of pollution. And I mean, I can go back into the early 80s. I was driving a tugboat out of New York and I was hauling uh, garbage scows out 75 miles off the coast of New York and dumping them. This is just raw garbage. This is just all this, all the garbage that came from a garbage dump. And at the time, um, I was really kind of becoming aware of the environment. I knew it was a bad thing that I was doing, but it was legal. And, you know, there there is the problem right there. Um, luckily, I didn't do it for very long. And, and ironically, I think I'd, I maybe made two, three loads out. And um, the government shut it all down, said you couldn't do it, which was actually a great thing, which is a fantastic thing. But, I mean, we're all a part. What I'm trying to say is we're all a part of some sort of environmental problem, whether we realize it or not. And we have to change our behavior in order to make the environment cleaner. And it's just not about the environment. It's about us. It's about us living healthy. It's about us not getting sick. But, you know, environmental stuff is just one aspect of the environments that we live in political environments, social environments, religious environments. You can put whatever you want in front of environments, and it's like a giant parentheses. And we categorize this notion or common theme and in, in big picture into this idea of what this environment is. And of course, when you sail and cruise, for the most part you're actually in your own environment. And this is unique. Your boat is your home, and this bubble you live in moves from one environment to another environment with the comfort of familiarity and safety that you've come to enjoy in your boat. If your environment feels threatened by another more powerful environment, for example, like a hurricane, a political environment or an economic environment, you can pick up your boat, you could sail away and go to a different and safer environment or an environment that you're familiar with and is safe. People on land and some sailors who don't venture far from home um, usually are not severely affected by another environment kind of busting your bubble. You know what I'm saying? It's just like... If you're just going to go out and, like, I have a lot of friends, and we, we race out of Santa Monica Bay, and you're going to go from Marina del Rey out into Santa Monica Bay, you're going to do that, come back. You're moving this sort of small environment, but your bubble's not going to be burst unless the Coast Guard comes and says you can't race, or there's an oil spill out there, or there's a wreck, or some other disaster. I had I had a an acquaintance um, 
that I knew um, fairly well, who was a broker that uh, got hit by a boom racing, went over the side, and when he hit the water, I guess he had a massive heart attack and died. So with those kinds of environmental impingements that could make your, you know, you really question a lot of stuff. But what I'm referring to and what I want to talk about today is the environment of really traveling to places that I love. And if you all have been listening to any of the podcasts from prior, you know I love exotic places. And when I mean exotic places, I mean different places. I love experiencing other bubbles. I love diving into and living and experiencing new environments. I'm not a tourist in the sense that I I like to go to some place and stand around and go, oh, that's really great. Where can I buy a t-shirt and go? To me, if that's all the traveling you're going to do, that's great. Okay, that's good for you. But it's not it's not the sumptuousness, it's not the depth that I want to experience because I think experiencing these other areas and other environments has a way of building your character and giving you a substance. I mean, after all, it's just, what do we have in this world? We have our experiences and our memories, and that's what, that's what our, our um, value is is in those experiences, how we, how we uh, use those experiences, how we invest that value in offering advice to other people or maybe doing a podcast or writing novels or you know passing along a story to your, your children or your grandchildren. This is really, truly the only value we have. Cars, airplanes, boats, all the rest of the stuff is kind of not as important as what we offer in terms of our experience and the way we synthesize that experience, process that experience. I think sailing is a perfect vehicle for going into these different environments. It has a safety aspect to it because you've got your boat, right? You have a place to live. There's an economic uh, value to it, okay? And the life of a sailor affords like this avenue to go into new bubbles that are otherwise close to like regular land-based, I flew in overnight visitor type. After you, after you, all oh, you bring your home, your home has value. Your boat has a dollar and cents sign on it. You know, it's not like you're bringing your Costco luggage. You know, in fact, some places you go, you could get cheaper luggage that's better like umbrellas, like Rhodes is a great place to get umbrellas. And you would think, why is a place that's so sunny so perfect for umbrellas? Well, they set up an umbrella industry. The British set up an umbrella industry in Rhodes to employ the people after World War II where there were no jobs and there were no manufacturing. So they created uh, umbrellas. This is what they have. So they, they make umbrellas. Weird as that sounds. But you don't come across this kind of thing is where that's your values. You see, that's how that value sort of uh, moves from um, this sort of desperate environment to an improved environment to it's so improved that the umbrella making has gone to Malaysia and that the umbrellas are just a sort of residual um, nuance of the past. It's kind of interesting in that regard.
So the thing to understand too, when you're in your boat and you're going to different countries, especially countries and places that are, I wouldn't say off the grid, but off the grid for sailing. For example, uh, the Caribbean. The Caribbean is, it was many years ago when I first started going there in the 70s, the Caribbean was a bit of a wild place. Now it is very curated. Um, You can move from one island to the other island. It's very oriented towards your tourism. Um, you get the warm water, sparkling beaches, great sailing. Um, but the culture is very well hidden. It's behind closed doors. And it's all about the tourism industry. And that's not to say that the places in the Caribbean like St. Thomas or St. Martin or St. Lucia or any other other places, the Grenadines have lost their pizzazz, but they've had the rough edges, so to speak, polished off them. So those bubbles are places that are going to be nice and soft. You'll get a taste, but it won't be aggressive towards you. It's a controlled environment. And it's the same when I see these guys go out and they want to do like, you know, they're, they have um, adventure tours and, and all the rest of this kind of stuff. I used to do like an adventure thing. Whenever I crossed the Atlantic, I would always bring, you know, one, two, three people who want it on their bucket list to say, I want to cross the, the Atlantic Ocean. They wanted that, you know, they wanted that in their thing. And I used to do that. That was their adventure thing. What usually freaked them out was the fact that there were... There were no trainer wheels. There were no safety. You had to get up. You had to work. You had to deal with being tired. You had to constantly adjust the sails. You had boredom. You had uncomfortable. You had to be wet. You had to be all this kind of stuff. And this experience was less manicured, so to speak. But that's kind of the problem, isn't it? The, the world, the other world, the world you don't see, the people in that world understand value because it, for them it's so hard to get value. For them there's a million environments that are pressing against them intellectually, physically, emotionally, in every possible way for them to acquire value. And don't think because you're sailing off Nantucket in a controlled environment, economically, controlled politically, controlled judiciously, that people don't judge you and your boat with a certain amount of attribution. You're always going to be judged for that particular value. I mean, this is a problem. Oh, he's got a big mega yacht or he's got a 21-foot Catalina or whatever the case may be, it's, there's always this attribution that goes on. There's a sense of what that value is. And, in, outside of, and it exists in America, but it really exists outside of America. So I got to say that I was vaguely aware many years ago of my presence with my boat in a small harbor in a foreign port and how it affected the port and how it affected me. And there's a sense of awareness that is real important for you to be in control of. 
because it will make either your stay really cool or your stay, like, why did we come stay? Or it could be a nightmare. And this experience is how I look at all the environments. And in this case, in this particular story, I'm going to tell you about how all the environments exploded like so many bubbles in a bubble bath, leaving me nearly jailed and my boat stolen. There is the old adage, life is fleeting and you must seize the moment. I've experienced uh, tumultuous environments of war at the point of the spear, as some of you may remember. If you listen to my earlier podcasts, I served in the 82nd Airborne, and I was a trainer in Thailand during the Vietnam War and had plenty of uh, experience in being at the tip of the spear, so to speak. But outside of that, we grow old, we take that experience, we put that experience you know, in our pocket, and we go. But as many of the veterans out there know who have served in Iraq and Afghanistan and other places in the world know that, you know, that's an experience that is in your own environment that you put in your pocket and it's, it's, it shapes you. It makes you who you are and how you deal with that experience will tell you what kind of character you have. But I have never been in the river of damage that a war creates. I'm talking about the refugees, the corruption, the anxiety, the, the thunderous sounds of artillery shells. Um, when you don't have a weapon in your hand and you don't have a side, you just want to get the hell out of there. And in all of that sort of river of damage, I was in the middle of that river, bright, shiny, high-valued sailing yacht flying an American flag with all the privilege I could garner. Whether it was true or not, I used to say, well, we're going to go totally British. This is my empire, and you're living in it by my grace. Remember that. And then the locals will kind of look at you go like, the British had got so many people spooked by the way they had their empire going that it actually works, believe it or not. In the spring, I had gone to a boat show um, over Marmaris, and my agent, who was Greek, and another agent, they worked together, who was Turkish, asked me if I would relocate my boat. Now, relocation, you get paid to relocate your boat. And what they had in mind was there was a, a, a couple that had a very ambitious, they wanted to do a very ambitious um, sailing charter. And one of their requirements was um, they'd, like, they'd rather do it on an American boat, the privilege as well as um, they wanted a small crew, um, no more than, than a captain and, and a mate or, or, or a chef. They want to be a little bit hands-on with sailing, but necessarily didn't want to have the responsibility of handling the boat. They wanted a captain who was experienced in the Eastern Med, in 
particularly in the Middle East. I had a little experience. I wasn't really greatly experienced, but I had been round a little bit. I had been to Egypt. I'd been through the Suez Canal. I'd been to Cyprus. Um, I sailed the Red Sea. I had a good idea of, you know, the people and, and the things and all the rest of that kind of stuff. So it was it was good. I mean, I really kind of missed two giant problems. One, um, Eastern, Tur- well, I shouldn't say Turkey, but um, Syria and um, Lebanon and Israel. I was in Israel, and I kind of know what to expect when you get into Israel, but um, but uh, Lebanon and, and, and Syria, Syria being really the mystery, um, of, of everything. Um, but one of the things that this couple wanted to do is they wanted to do a tour, literally a sailing tour, which is actually kind of a brilliant idea in a way of the northeastern corner of the Mediterranean from Anatolia all the way around as far south as Haifa, and then they wanted to go north to Lanerka in Cyprus, where I would drop them off, and then I would sail back to Rhodes. For me, it was a trip of nearly 2,000 nautical miles over the summer, and that's how I spent my summer, and actually how I spent my fall, and with a great deal of strangeness and danger. So I made the quick trip down to, um, quick trip, I say from Rhodes to Anatolia is about 200 nautical miles, somewhere maybe two, maybe a little 225 or something like that. And when you're sailing down there, there's one thing you have to understand is, is that you have land breeze, ocean breeze, right? And because of the summer and spring, the land really gets hot. So the breeze coming off of the mountains, you can get knocked down so fast because the coast is absolutely spectacular. It's got giant cliffs, rolling hills. It's green. Um, you could smell the pine. You could smell the loamy earth. I mean, Turkey is just an amazing country with right now a little bit of a screwed up political system or political actors, not much different than we have here in the United States, but it is such a beautiful country. And the people are so nice, and the people are so generous. And there's this giant gap between money and not money, not having money, and the poor. And the poor are probably the most generous people that you could find on earth. And even some of the richer people are very, very nice. So I made the trip. I sailed down there with my mate. And we got down there. My mate, she um, she spoke French. She was French. And which is always very good to have somebody else who can speak other languages. And she could speak French and Spanish. And um, I could speak English and French. So we, we had, you know, ourselves covered in that. And I know a little bit of Spanish. I mean... And, you know, languages are, if you don't practice them, they, you know, they, don't, they disappear in your head somehow. So we went to Anatolia. And Anatolia is a, is a really beautiful, beautiful city with a tiny, tiny harbor. And it's, it's notorious for being a horrible har- harbor 
in the winter. Now, Anatolia coast of Turkey right there kind of tracks uh, west, east, east to west. The wind in the summer tracks from the north through the mountains. There's a big mountain range behind Anatolia. And it comes down across the port. In the port, you're pretty well protected. You get outside the port, you can have a really steady breeze, especially if the Meltemi is up. And it'll be 40 knots, period. Flat out, day in, day out, three days in a row. In the winter, the wind shifts completely around until you get the Scirocco coming off of the desert. And that's coming primarily or generally from the south, maybe south-southeast or southwest, depending. It, it comes up, and it'll push the Mediterranean right up into that harbor, right up against the coast of Turkey. So the, in Anatolia, in that area, there aren't a lot of places. There's beaches, there's cliffs, gorgeous, but there's no marinas. There's very few places to anchor, so you're pretty much on the go while you're sailing. And it's good to know because you have to, um, you know, watch your fuel and, 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 you know, watch the skies and watch the wind because you can get some horrible stuff. I've been in, when I was in Anatolia, we went into the harbor to pick up the guests, okay? The temperature was 95 degrees. It was like, what's that, 40-something um, Celsius? And it was so hot. It was so oppressively hot. And it was not oppressively hot during the day, and it cooled off at night. It was hot all the way through. It was, it was like at night somebody had a hairdryer, and they, were, they had it on high and full blow, and they were blowing it in your face. It would curdle your eyebrows. It was, it was crazy heat, crazy heat. One of the other requirements that I had on my boat that the guests wanted were, was air conditioning. And I did have air conditioning. And I, air conditioning on a boat is, especially a smaller boat, my boat was um, 54 feet. Um, it's great. But the insulation isn't there to hold the cold air. And basically all the air conditioning does is, you know, run the hell out of your generator and um, just take the edge off of the heat for the most part. Um, it's nice to have an air conditioner. It's nice It's nice to to have it there. But your fuel consumption and everything else that goes along with the air conditioning is just, you know... It's 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 a lot. You, you sort of take the time that you could have a full tank of fuel or fuel, full tanks of fuel, and you have it reduced by half with the air conditioning and the generator running twenty four seven. I mean, I'd rather not have it on. I'd rather just suffer through the heat. Matter of fact, it was so hot. A friend of mine used to say that, and 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 Talia is also got. Um, they have some notorious flies. And when I say notorious flies, I'm talking about, you know, these big-ass horse flies. And they fly all over the place. There's thousands, millions of them all over the place. Well, they will fly in the shade, but they will not go in the sun. That's how smart these flies are. They will not go in the sun during the day. And, like, they get right to the edge of the shade, and they stop, and they turn around and come back. Because once that sun hits them, they, like, die instantly. They've fallen on the ground. You can crush them, literally. The stupid ones, you know, 
you know, you could just walk along and crush them and step on them. Weird. But this is something you knew. But in Anatolia, they have Hadrian's Gate. And this is very interesting because it was uh, the emperor of, of Rome, Hadrian. They, he came there um, and sailed this coast. This coast has been sailed by everybody, okay? Everybody has sailed this coast. And Anatolia is a place that has been in a number. It was Roman for a long time. Um, it was an Ottoman place for a long time. Um, it was Greek for a long time. I mean, you could go all the way through history. It was changed a lot of hands. It was actually a place where there was a lot of quarters. And if you're not familiar with a lot of these older cities, a quarter is it's like you would have the Italian quarter or the or the Jewish quarter or the Muslim quarter or the Christian quarter. And those quarters would all be separated by walls. So people could live. This is this was the thinking. This is the way people thought. And don't get me wrong, but there's people still think this way a lot. Maybe not overtly, but subtly. It's kind of in the it's in the culture. It's in the thinking. So we picked up our guests, and um, the the man's name was Irish Shepherd. Great name. And his wife was Cecilia. And um, they were actually British. Um, they were British of Iraqi descent. Now, this is important because this is one of those environmental bubbles kind of rubbing up against my environmental bubble without me knowing very much about what's going on. So, from what I understood, the Irish told me he was a super nice guy, both of them were lovely, um, that they were going to sail all the way around and we were going to go all the way down to as far as Israel and Haifa and then back up uh, into Lanarka, um, Cyprus. And that he was going to, to meet some friends, that he had family around, and even though he had been away a long time and he lived in in Britain, and this was going to be something, and he lived in Britain and Cecilia was Canadian. And and so they, they both had British and Canadian passports, which is great. Canadian passports are terrific. You can go anywhere with a Canadian passport. Um, not so much with an American passport. People are very suspicious of American passports. Um, anyway, so here's the thing is, is that we got them on the boat. We got out of that little harbor, which was, uh, and we had to, I had to go over to the industrial port. They have a little industrial port, which is kind of a petrochemical. They have, uh, um, they built ships there. Um, they're actually building, um, composite, uh, yachts and boats there, um, which is a new, a new thing because the Turkish, the Turkish boat building industry is kind of um, interesting development over time is that um, they built a lot of uh, wooden boats. They have tremendous pine forests all over uh, all over Turkey. So they were building these boats and, and, and you, you probably saw Gulat or Gulet. And, and you know they're they're kind of an old-fashioned boat and they use those for charter and and but they also use them for fishing and stuff like that and they're all made of wood and then they they also make in the northern part of the country they make steel boats 
uh, mostly for commercial use. Um, they're very aggressive in the boat building business. And back, I guess it was in the early 80s, they started trying to build mega yachts or yachts in general. Um, with some limited success, um, tough market to break into, but they're kind of subsidized and you know they will, they will eventually do very well. Um, they're great craftsmen, the, the Turks. So we went in to the commercial port in Anatolia and um, fueled up because I knew we weren't going to have a lot of fuel because of our next stop. And I didn't know if we were going to be able to get fuel, even though Irish kept telling me that it would be not a problem. So off we went. And we're talking about when you're charter, you usually like to do a couple of things. You like to, you know, have breakfast in the morning, maybe take a quick swim, get back in the boat, get the anchor up, go sailing for a few hours, go to a new spot, have lunch, you know, maybe take a dip, take a quick nap, go for another sail in the afternoon, in the evening, and come into someplace very nice where people can, you know, have dinner off the boat or, you know, in an anchorage that's really quiet and beautiful and you can just, you know, enjoy the atmosphere. But in this charter... We had, to cl we had to clock some miles. We really had to crank some miles. And with the shifting winds, especially in the mid-afternoon, where the offshore wind was just furious and, and so difficult to sail, it was, just, it, was some hard, it was some hard ass sailing. I actually broke uh, a D-ring that was a deck D-ring um, from my mizzen. And my blocks and everything went crazy. And I had to tie that off. And it was just like, it, it just broke. It was just bad. It was quite crazy, crazy. Our first place of stopping was going to be um, the Turkish town of Iskadarian. Now, Iskadarian is famous um, for being like the largest port on the very southern tip of, of Turkey. You know, we, we get we see Turkey from the Black Sea, you know, Constantinople and the Bosporus Straits, and then it kind of comes around. It looks like, you know, like a big thumb sticking out there. And then it kind of turns back and goes east. And then, but at the very end of Turkey, it goes south. And Iskadarian is famous for the port which isn't much of a port. It's it's a sort of a launching place um, out of uh, Syria, and um, you know people cross the border from Syria to to Turkey, which is heavily guarded. And it's also known as where they shot a lot of the Raiders of the Lost Ark, and it looks just like the Raiders of the Lost Ark in parts of it. But essentially, it's just a sort of a Middle class, lower middle class, beat up cars in the driveway, on the street, um, you know, working class place. It's just a working class place. And it's it's kind of cool. Um, 
some really good food, I might add. We ate in a restaurant there, and it was some really good food. We got fuel, and um, I knew that uh, it would be uh, it would be tough. It was it was expensive, uh, more expensive than I expected, but you know, didn't matter because Irish and uh, Cecilia were they were paying the freight and they were paying premium freight. So we're in Ishkadaria. And he uh, went to use a phone um, in Turkey, and he was talking on the phone. And I could see him from where we were on the dock with the boat. And um, he was, it was, a, it was a, like a convenience store. And he was standing there sort of like on the edge of right near the outdoor um, gate. And I couldn't see him talking. He was getting really heated, and he was very upset and um, he came back, and I kind of got the idea that they were both of them were keeping a secret from us, and um, that there was more to do than this. So he came, he came to me after this big discussion. And he says, "Look, I don't know if you've ever been, but we're inviting you. Um, it would be safe to leave the boat, and um, we'll take you to Antioch." We're going to rent a car and go to Antioch. Now, Antioch is a very, very famous place in biblical terms. Um, it's not, to be honest, not much to look at, um, but it is an incredibly important place. Um, Christianity um, uh, is a big spot for Paul and Peter. Um, there's a lot of discussion in the Bible about Antioch, and, you know, it's, 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 on, a, it's on a river, um, a beautiful river. It's a it's a place of of uh, farming community and beautiful, open, rich fields. And it's just um, it's just a really beautiful, beautiful place with a lot of history going Greek, Roman, Persian. I mean, you name it, the history's there. All you do is you keep falling over stuff, and it's just absolutely extraordinary. So we. We went to Antioch with a um, by car. We rented a taxi, and uh, we zoomed over there. It's not very far. And we wandered around, and they wandered around, and we took pictures, and we did the whole touristy, touristy thing. And then I noticed that Irish was in a conversation with uh, somebody, a man, um, who was well-dressed. Um, I would have guessed he was a government figure. And he was talking to Irish, and they they talked as if they kind of knew each other. And actually, Irish was speaking to him in um, Arabic, and which is not a surprise for for anybody who has traveled. You know, most Europeans, uh, most people in the Middle East, um, speak different languages. Um, they all have a great grasp of languages. Only in places like America do people barely speak English um, as their primary language. Um, I say that very sarcastically. Um, but in any case, there is no multilingualism in the United States per se, except for the Spanish and the Americans, you know, the Spanish and the English speakers. But in, in Europe, I mean, you could talk to a carpet salesman a Turkish carpet salesman, and he may speak seven or eight different languages easily um, and be able to move fluently back and forth. 
And these are the same people that nobody wants in their country and look down on them as, as being some sort of, you know, scum of the earth kind of thing. And these guys, they're really quite brilliant. They're really quite brilliant within their own environment, in their environmental bubble. So I kind of felt that we were getting this sort of pressure on us, um, even though nobody had said a word to me. But, you know, you have to, as a captain, you have to be kind of observant to know where your, you know, where your stuff is, okay? Where your bubble, what, how do you fit in this environment? Now, Antioch was really great, and it turned out there were a whole bunch of pilgrims there that had come from Tulsa, Oklahoma, believe it or not. And, and it was like, it was the weirdest thing to hear these, you know, Oklahoma Southern twang kind of voices going on, you know, in the middle, I hadn't heard an, an American voice, just maybe English voices or German speaking English or, or, or French. And that's all I heard. And it was like listening to these people talk and just sort of kicking the stones and looking around and talking about this and talking about that and sooner football. And, you know, it's like, dude, they, they kind of missed the entire point by not allowing the place, the environment of the place to wash through you and to understand it. You know, to look at these churches, of this one church in particular, Antioch, in which thousands of people have shed blood over. There's a very, it's a very deep moving, um, I hate to say it, religious kind of experience. But my thing, something else was going on, and Irish, Irish and Cecilia started to, to get a little squirmy. So when we were on the car, in the car on the way back, we, I sort of brought it up. I said, hey, who was that guy? Was that a government official guy? I don't just sort of, you know, playing stupid as far as that's concerned. He goes, yes. He says, let's talk when we get on the boat. Well, you know, it's let's talk sometime other than right now is always an important um, let's talk kind of thing. So we are pausing the story in Ishkader, which you might recognize from Where's the Lost Ark? And that's the, the scene in the bazaar where he shoots the sword-wielding villain. And it'll be interesting to find out what happens next. So what happened? What happened? Well, Harrison Ford, Harrison Ford had, had dysentery. And he was exhausted, and they wanted to finish the scene, so he just pulled his his revolver out and shot the guy. They were actually scheduled to have a huge fight, but he just didn't have the energy, and it actually turned out to be one of the more memorable scenes. Yeah. That's what that's about. But I was asking what happened back on the boat when you had your conversation. Oh, when we had our conversation, that's when I realized um, and I learned that this uh, charter wasn't just for sailing around the coast and looking at archaeological sites and having really fine dinners with beautiful sunsets. Um, this was a, a, a very, very specific, um, a very, very specific need that was going on. And I had, I had a big decision to make. And um, in part two, 
um, I make I make the decision, and that's uh, you know I have to live with that decision. But uh, it I almost lost my boat and almost lost my life. Great. So tune in next week to hear the conclusion of this story to find out what happens. Thank you for tuning in. If you like this episode, be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Also, be sure to rate and review. You can find us on Facebook and at offshoreexplorer.org. You can also listen to past episodes at offshore-explorer.simplecast.com. Our theme song is sung by Paulette McWilliams, with additional music by Amanu Itomi and Tommy Twang. Until next time, fair winds and calm seas.